Well, as we began this series of sermons on the seven letters to the churches, we began a few weeks ago, we said that in addressing seven churches, Jesus is addressing the whole church. Why? Because seven in Scripture is the number of wholeness, the number of completeness. So we can think of these seven letters to the churches as one complete picture of the church. And it's a picture that has been very carefully and very artfully structured. So using James Hamilton's analogy, James Hamilton was one of my professors at Southern Seminary. He's written a commentary on Revelation. And using his analogy of a framed picture, the top half of the wooden frame is Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. Ephesus with its lost love. Ephesus is the first of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Now you might expect that the second church, Smyrna, would make up the wooden frame on the bottom part of the picture, but you would be wrong. In fact, it's the last of the seven churches, the seventh church, Laodicea, that makes up the other side of the wooden frame. And why? Well, because the seventh and final church, Laodicea, parallels the top half of the frame. It parallels the first church, Ephesus, in that a diluted love, a lukewarmness, had befallen Laodicea. We'll get there in a few weeks. And that's similar to the issue of lost love in the first church, in Ephesus. So we have the first church and the last church then paralleling one another and making up the wooden frame of the picture. And then moving on to the inside of the picture, on the top half of what we could call the mat area, if you're familiar with the frame picture, it's got the mat around the actual picture. On the top half of the mat, we have church number two, Smyrna, which is one of only two churches who are not called at all to repent but rather are commended by Jesus for their faithfulness. One of only two churches, and so guess what? On the bottom half of the mat then, we have the other church, the sixth church, Philadelphia, which parallels Smyrna, because like Smyrna, the church in Philadelphia is also not called by Jesus to repent, but they are commended for their faithfulness. And so have you noticed a pattern emerging so far? We have churches 1 and 7 paralleling each other, Ephesus and Laodicea, and now we have churches 2 and 6 paralleling each other, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Can you guess what the next two parallel churches will be? You guessed it. The next two, now getting closer to the center of the picture, are church 3, Pergamum, and church 5, Sardis. These two churches make up the sides of the picture that sits sits inside the mat. Both Pergamum and Sardis are churches with significant troubles, and both are called specifically to repent by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, right at the center of the picture, right in the center 
of the seven churches is the fourth church where unrepentance, a refusal to repent, is specifically the problem. The number four, of course, is the middle number in a set of seven, correct? The fourth church is Thyatira, which is the church that we are considering this morning. There is a significance then, friends, in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, a significance that Thyatira comes at the center of the seven churches, and we are going to note at least something about that significance a little later on. But for now, I wanted you to notice the very artful, the very purposeful, the genius way in which this whole section of Scripture has been structured. We know that when we're talking about the authors of Scripture, we are talking about geniuses who were inspired by the living God to write. Churches one and seven parallel one another in terms of the content that is addressed to them, and two and six parallel one another in the same way as do three and five, with church four, Thyatira, being placed right in the center. Well, this morning, we listen to Jesus as he speaks to this fourth and middle church. This church in Thyatira, uh, there are just a couple of things about the city of Thyatira, first of all. The thing that characterized this place, perhaps above all, was its commercial character, its commercial character. In some ways, Thyatira actually reminds me quite a lot of my hometown, Edmonton. In Edmonton, there are a whole host of people, in fact, most people, I would say, a whole host of people who work in various trades, whether the trade is pipe fitting, heavy-duty mechanics, um, all manner of electrical trades, you name it. Thyatira was known for its variety of trades and trade guilds or trade associations. So you had a trade guild in Thyatira for linen workers and a trade guild for bronze smiths. And you had another trade guild for potters and another one for shoemakers. You had a trade guild for bakers and another trade guild for garment makers. The city had a remarkable number of these trade associations, these trade guilds. It was a commercial hub. And it's interesting that in Acts 16, verse 14, we learn that the lady Lydia was from, guess where? Thyatira. And Lydia was a, she was involved in a commercial enterprise. She was a seller of purple goods. So hailing from Thyatira, as she did, it's not altogether surprising that she was involved in a commercial enterprise. Well, we need to keep this knowledge of Thyatira's commercial-slash-financial character in our minds as we travel now into our text. So beginning at Revelation 2, verse 18, Jesus says to his church in Thyatira, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, and again, we've talked about how each church has an angel, a kind of guardian angel. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, 
and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, just a word or two quickly about Jesus' self-identification here in this verse. He identifies himself, first of all, as the Son of God. And if we've been reading our Old Testament, we understand, especially in places like 2 Samuel chapter 7 and in Psalm chapter 2, the phrase, Son of God, has direct associations with David and the lineage of Davidic kings, kings who came in the line of David. Jesus is identifying himself here as the Davidic king, the king who comes in the lineage of David. And this will become important a little bit later on in our text. So that's one shade of son of God here. But Jesus is also identifying himself in this way as son of God, perhaps because the habit of Caesar was to identify himself as a son of God. So Jesus is saying here, well, really, there's only one true Son of God, and I'm it. I am the Son of God. Well, Jesus also says here, doesn't he, that he has eyes like a flame of fire. That is to say, friends, that the eyes of Jesus, we need to know this, the vision of Jesus Christ penetrates It burns through everything. Jesus can see through everything. Nothing escapes his vision. Amen? Nothing escapes his vision. This is a glorious vision of our king here. And Jesus also says here that his feet are like burnished bronze. Now this description might resonate with many of the listeners in this city of Thyatira because there were a high number of copper smelters and bronze workers in the city and probably in the church. But having feet like burnished bronze, imagine if you had feet like burnished bronze. This means that the feet of Jesus are super strong, (laughs) super strong, able to trample upon evil where necessary. Feet like burnished bronze. Well, after this very glorious self-identification of Jesus, in verse 19 now, Jesus begins to lay out the picture. We've talked about the picture of each of these churches. Here now he lays out the picture of the church in Thyatira, and he begins with a glowing commendation of this church. He says, listen to what he says here, I know, Jesus knows, because he stands in the midst of the seven lampstands. He's not aloof from his church, but he stands in the midst of us. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Now, this is certainly nothing to sneeze at here. 
we, what we see here is that at least some of the fruit of the Spirit was evidence in the, evident in this church, right? Love was manifest there in Thyatira, where the first church, Ephesus, had lost the love that it had at first. And Thyatira had faith. They were continuing through thick and thin to rely on Jesus Christ. And they were involved in service, in works of charity, in works of care. And they had been patiently enduring. That is, they had been persevering in their context, persevering amidst pressure and amidst the trials that they were facing as a church. And, says Jesus at the end there, your latter works exceed the first. That is, there had been in Thyatira an evident forward growth in this church, a maturing into the ways of the Master, Jesus Christ. So there's a lot to be encouraged about here in Thyatira, a lot to be encouraged about if you are part of this church. But then, friends... Then we have verse 20. Then comes the problem that Jesus, with his eyes like flaming fire, that he sees here and identifies. He says to his church, but I have this against you, that you, what's the word, tolerate, you permit, You allow to continue that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing, teaching and seducing my servants to practice what? Sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Notice, first of all, here that Jesus criticizes his church, criticizes his church for its tolerance. Yes, you heard me right, Canadians. Jesus criticizes his church for its tolerance. They had, be, they had been tolerating something that they should not have been tolerating. They had been permitting this Jezebel figure to operate in their midst, this fake prophetess who was leading many in the church down a very wicked path. What the church should have been doing in this case was to exercise church discipline on this Jezebel. There is still a place for church discipline if we would be obedient to Jesus Christ. Now, more than likely, this Jezebel figure here was not literally named Jezebel, more than likely. What Jesus is doing here is what? He's recalling, of course, the Old Testament story of Jezebel, and he's doing that in order to describe this person who was operating in Thyatira. So let's do a little bit of Old Testament recall here. Who was Jezebel again? Well, Jezebel was a Phoenician woman who had married the northern Israelite king, 
Ahab. Jezebel very soon became very influential within the northern government, and she brought in all of her worship of Baal and all of her idolatrous practices. She decided that it was okay and even right to have the worship of Baal and the worship of Yahweh simply coexisting side by side. She decided that was okay, and she determined to persecute and even kill any prophet of Yahweh who stood up against her, Jezebel. And so great was her idolatrous influence on her husband, King Ahab, that when Ahab's legacy is described in 1 Kings 16, verse 33, here's what it says, that Ahab, quote, quoting scripture, did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Not a great legacy. And again, Jezebel was the wife of the northern king, Ahab. As we look at Old Testament history, we see that northern kings had an illegitimacy about them, an illegitimacy. It was only the southern kings, born in the lineage of David, who were the legitimate, divinely sanctioned kings of Israel. And friends, it's right here that we remember that as this letter of Thyatira began, Jesus identified himself as what? Son of God. That is, he identified himself as the king in the lineage of David. Amen? Jesus is, I want you to know this today, he is the legitimate king of his church. He is the rightful head of his church. This Jezebel imposter who was making trouble in the church was illegitimate. She was no prophetess at all. Now let's look again at this verse. Jesus describes the activity of this false prophetess as doing what? She's teaching and seducing his servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, almost without a doubt, what was happening in the church of Thyatira had to do with the trade guilds that we mentioned earlier in the sermon. The trade guilds that were so prominent in this city of Thyatira. The majority of the working adults in this church would have been part of a trade guild. Now, if you were, say, just as an example, you're a member of the Copper Smelters Guild in Thyatira, you would be expected to come to the Copper Smelters Guild feasts. And at those feasts, libations would be poured out, toasts would be made to the patron god, of the guild, and you would be expected to pay homage to the patron god, whether that god was Apollo or 
Dionysius or some other god. You'd be expected to pay homage with the rest of the people. And the meat on the table, the meat would have been sacrificed to a god in a ceremony before winding up on the table for consumption. And for the happy continuance and the unbroken success of your business, you would be expected to eat the meat and drink the alcohol that had been toasted to the patron god. And as the night wore on, and as the alcohol had been flowing for a few hours, people would start to engage in all manner of immoral behavior. Sexual immorality, sexual excesses. And again, if you refuse to participate, people would take notice. More than likely, friends, the Jezebel figure in the church of Thyatira was saying to the people of the church out of her so-called prophetic gift, that it was okay to participate in all of this revelry at the trade guild feasts. After all, she would say, can we not separate Sunday worship with what we do during the week? She would say something like this, you can still worship Jesus in the church, and then go out on Monday and carouse in your civil life. After all, you have to do your civic duty for the sake of your business. You need not suffer financial loss by refusing to participate in the immoral feast. Just go ahead. Well, the Son of God with his eyes like flaming fire and his mighty bronze feet, says a categorical no to this evil teaching of Jezebel. My friends, Jesus wants the church in all times and in all places, he wants the church to be intolerant of a Jezebel sort of teaching and a Jezebel influence. And may the Holy Spirit help you today, believer. Let's get right up close and personal. May he help you. May he give you his wisdom. We all need his wisdom, amen? May he give us his wisdom. May he help you know what to do, even today, tomorrow help you to know what to do if you are working in an environment right now where, say, your employer is suggesting or requesting or even demanding that you do something immoral, something deceitful. Ah, oh, come on, just fudge these numbers a little bit so that we can get the deal that we've been working on. It's not a big deal. Something like that. Here's the question that springs from our text today. It's put into words very well by the great Canadian preacher, Daryl Johnson. Johnson says that the question here is this, who will I follow, Jesus 
or the leaders of the trade guilds? Who will be first? The Lord Jesus or my employer and my employer's expectations? What will be of uppermost importance? My success or the vitality of my relationship with Jesus? Close quote. May the Holy Spirit speak as he does through his word. May he speak to each and every one of us right now and convict us for his glory. And may we decide where necessary, may we decide to take action for his glory, with his glory uppermost in our view. Remember that as a believer, you are part of his church, amen, and you remain his church on your Monday to Friday. And so may his name be made great in your situation, my friend, even if it may cost you. But let's hasten on through our text here. We spent a lot of time on verse 20. So verse 21, Jesus asserts that he had been patient, hadn't he? He'd been patient, as Jesus is. He'd been patient with this Jezebel person. He says, I gave her time. I gave her time to repent, but she, horrifying, refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Jezebel had stubbornly refused to turn, to repent, to turn from her wicked ways. She'd refused despite the time that Jesus had given her to do that, and, and now time was up. Verse 22, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, Sometimes. Verse 22, behold, I will what? I will throw her, not I will gently place her. But I will throw her onto a sick bed. What's a sick bed? Well, a sick bed is a place of suffering, isn't it? And now this Jezebel would suffer by the decree of Jesus for her unrepentant wickedness. And Jesus continues here, those who commit adultery with her, that is, those who have been drawn into the compromise that she had been promoting, practicing what she had preached, those, says Jesus, I will throw into great tribulation. They too will suffer a great affliction at the hands of Jesus unless, notice, they repent of her works. Unless they repent. There was still time for the followers of Jezebel to repent, to turn from their current position of having one foot in the church and the other in drunken, idolatrous immorality. Still time to repent of that. And so the question is, what would they do? Verse 23, and I will strike her children dead. 
probably, if we're going to look for life verses in the Bible, we're not going to choose these ones, right? Jesus says, and I will strike her children dead. That is, unrepentant, unrepentant disciples and followers of Jezebel, followers of her teaching, doers of her teaching, will be, there's no other way to put it, they will be divinely judged to death. My friends, there's no getting around the fact that this is a terrifying word from Jesus Christ. There's no getting around it. What's he doing here? He's putting, probably with the first and second commandment in firmly in view, he's putting great emphasis on the idea that our worship of him, listen, must be exclusive worship. As believers who he has bought with the price of his life, we cannot have one foot in devotion to him and the other foot devoted to something else. We can't have one eye looking to Jesus and the other eye fixed on some worldly value or worldly idol. The head of the church is calling his church to exclusive worship, even if it may cost us something. A job, a promotion, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, etc. And then, friends, comes, I want you to see this, the central statement in the center letter of the seven churches. We're right here at the center. This sentence that falls smack dab in the middle of Revelation 2 and 3 is this sentence. And all the churches, notice suddenly he's addressing all the church, the whole church. All the churches, all seven churches, the whole church throughout time and throughout history, the whole church will know that I am he who searches minds and heart. This statement is at the center of the letters to the seven churches, and it is spoken by the head of the church, the one with all authority on earth and in heaven. Jesus Christ, listen, he searches with penetrating eyes like a flame of fire, he searches every heart and mind throughout all of history. Nothing ever has been, nothing ever will be hidden from his view. I am he who searches minds and heart. Matthew 28, how much authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth? All authority. So there's a real significance to the fact that this is the central statement in the entire group of seven letters. Aren't you glad for the redemption of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sin that he has provided on the cross of Jesus Christ for the not guilty verdict that God has given you because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ? not to absolve us from being doers of his word, but just to say that our sin has been forgiven because of him. 
Jesus continues by saying, and I will give to each of you, now don't look around at anybody else, just think about yourself, (laughs) and I will as well. I will give to each of you according to your works. The works we do throughout a seven-day week are the barometer, listen, the barometer of where our heart is at. Doing good works is not the means of our salvation. No, it's not. It's not the grounds of our justification before God, the shed blood of Jesus Christ is, but the good works result from salvation. Amen? We are saved unto good works. And for the Christian, good works must be evident. They must be in our lives. Jesus will give to each person according to their works. Verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching of Jezebel, who have not learned, now listen to this, have not learned what some call, what? The deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Now let's think about this for a minute. It seems clear that this Jezebel figure was claiming, claiming that her seductive teaching was the deep things of God. But the joke was on her. In fact, what she'd been teaching and what she'd been promoting in the church was the deep things of Satan. And some in the church had recognized that and they had labeled it for what it was. In fact, what she was teaching was the deep things of Satan. And Jesus is addressing here those in the church who had not fallen prey to this satanic teaching. And he says to them, I do not lay any other burden, any other burden on you. They already had a burden. And the burden was that they needed to exercise church discipline on this Jezebel person. That's their burden right now. Jesus will not lay any other burden on them. I will not lay any other burden on you. Verse 25, only hold fast, church. Hold fast what you have until I come. And we get a good indication of what this church had back in verse 19, right? What did they have? They had love, faith, service, and patient endurance. And Jesus says to them now, keep a firm grip, an unrelenting grip on those things and keep hold of me as you proactively deny the teaching of Jezebel and refuse to compromise in the ways that she has been promoting. Hold fast what you have until I come. And then verse 26, are you ready for an astounding promise? Are you ready? Let's say we're ready. All right. (laughs) Making sure you're awake. The one who, what? Conquers. Now, in this context, in this church of Thyatira, this idea of conquering is, is actually rather interesting. Think of this with me for a moment. What would it mean 
for followers of Jesus Christ to conquer in this context? Well, as Greg Beale has pointed out, to conquer in Thyatira would mean experiencing a defeat. To conquer here would mean experiencing a defeat. If the believers here steadfastly refused to compromise in the way that Jezebel had been promoting, they refused to do it, it could very well lead to them losing business. If they refused on grounds of faith in Jesus Christ, if they refused to participate in the idolatry and the sexual promiscuity of the trade guilds, it could very well mean ostracism in the world and even persecution from the world and a loss of finances and a loss of businesses. A defeat. But friends, in the economy of the eternal Son of God with eyes like a flame of fire, it would not be a defeat, but a conquering. As Greg Beale puts it so well, the church that perseveres in its witnessing faith wins a victory on earth, even though it suffers earthly defeat. Notice the paradox there. One more time, the church that perseveres in its witnessing faith wins a victory on earth, even though it suffers earthly defeat. To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give, here's the promise, (laughs) I will give authority over what? Get this. Authority over the nations, you believer, if you conquer. And he, she, will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself, says Jesus, have received authority from my Father. Now we need to remember here, Jesus began this letter identifying himself how? as the Son of God, right? As the king in the lineage of David. And it's the Son of God, the Davidic king, who is addressed in Psalm 2, verse 7. In Psalm 2, the Son of God in that psalm is promised what? He's promised the nations. The Son of God will rule over the nations, and how will he do that? He'll do it with a rod of iron, Psalm 2, verse 9 and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, also Psalm 2, verse 9. So clearly here in Revelation 2, 27, Jesus is referencing, isn't he, Psalm chapter 2, but here's the the, the very staggering nature of what he's promising his beleaguered church. Here's the staggering nature. To the faithful ones of his church who refuse to compromise in the present moment, refuse to compromise, even though it may cost us. To those who refuse to go the way of Jezebel and her teaching in the present, even though it may mean that we experience defeat in our immediate circumstances, 
we will end up doing what? Co-ruling, co-ruling with the Son of God over the nations. This is an absolutely breathtaking promise that Jesus makes here to his church. And the breathtaking promise just continues now in verse 28. He says, listen to this, and I will give him the morning star. Remember Balaam? We were discussing Balaam, if you were with us last Sunday. In Numbers 24, I love the story of Balaam. In Numbers 24, when God decides that God will put his word into the mouth of Balaam, Balaam expected to be cursing Israel and he ends up blessing Israel (laughs) because God says so. When God puts his word into the mouth of Balaam, one of the things that Balaam prophesies is that a star would come out of Jacob. Well, in this book of Revelation, Jesus identifies himself explicitly as that star. He says in Revelation 22:16, "I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star." Jesus is the morning star, and so here In 2.28, when he promises his conquering church the morning star, what's he promising his church? He's promising his church himself. His bright, life-giving presence up close and personal for eternity. Amen? Nothing better. Nothing better. Not only will the conquering church share his rule over the nations, they will enjoy the up-close presence and intimacy, seeing him face-to-face of the risen Jesus Christ himself for all eternity, and all the crying and dying that we experience now will be wiped away forever. No more tears, no more dying. Amen? Oh, and then our last verse, verse 29 We've heard it so many times through these letters. We talked about its significance last week where idols can't hear anything. And if you're an idolater, you become what you worship, right? You won't be able to hear. But for the elect, born again, regenerated believer in Jesus Christ, you've been given a set of spiritual ears. He who has an ear, she who has an ear, let him or her hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I wonder, friends, have we been hearing what the Spirit is saying to the churches, to his church over the past few weeks. And in hearing, going back to Jennifer's prayer, will we be doers of his word in the power that he supplies? One of the things that I strongly encourage you to do this week as we wrap this up now, I strongly encourage you to take your Bible this week and slowly prayerfully and meditatively read through the first, the entire first five chapters of the book of Revelation. And take note as you read how the first five chapters are structured. It's very important. So we can think of Revelation 1 as the first of two bookends. Think of a bookshelf with two bookends. Revelation 1 is the first of the two bookends. So in in the Revelation 1 bookend, We ascend in that chapter the heights of the glory of Jesus Christ. 
Revelation chapter 1. We are given a glorious vision of our king in Revelation chapter 1. On the other side, the other bookend, Revelation 4 and 5, we have a tremendous vision of worship. The worship of our Lord. So get the bookends. Revelation 1 and then Revelation 4 and 5, the glory of our king worship, all of it should lead us as we read prayerfully it should lead us to worship. These chapters really take our breath away as we behold our king and all of it brings us into worship. And then in between those two bookends, what do we have? Revelation 2 and 3, the seven letters to the churches. And if you haven't noticed already, generally speaking, the whole church of Jesus in these letters does not come out looking the greatest. I think there's a message to the church in the very way that these five chapters are laid out. As Jesus calls his church, calls us, in Revelation 2 and 3, he calls us to repent, to remember, to do the things that he has commanded. As he calls us to do that, he expects that our hearing and doing are going to be fueled by the vision of himself in chapter 1 and fueled by the vision of white-hot worship in chapters 4 and 5. So our motivation to obey as the church of Jesus is the glory of Jesus, chapter 1, and a thankful desire to worship him, chapter 4 and chapter 5. My friends, Jesus is a great king, isn't he? Jesus is a mighty savior. He died in our place to rescue us and he lives to transform us into his image. He is worthy, my friends, of our most fervent worship. He is due our happy and thankful obedience. And may his word continue to shape his church now and forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we bless you and thank you for your mission. Lord, you have uh, given birth and created by your word a church to be on mission for you. And so, Lord God, as we think about mission, as we think about um, as we read these letters, uh, the commendations you give us as your church and the lack that you point out, we pray because we can't do this by ourselves. We pray the Holy Spirit's help, strength, and enablement, conviction to be the church that you envision for your glory and for the sake of your world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.